You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we are turning to the second section of Paul's introduction to the Corinthian church. Uh, He had heard in Ephesus from members of Chloe's household about problems in the Corinthian church. One of the problems was the division amongst the believers in the Corinthian church, but Now he deals with a different report. Verse 1, it is actually reported, he says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now this was the case that Paul had heard of all the way there in Ephesus, Uh, a wild case, Uh, a case that the way Paul says it is, not even pagans would tolerate. Uh, Likely what had happened was that a man had divorced his wife or died and his wife remarried that man's son or married that man's son after divorce or after death. It's possible, however, especially given Paul's reaction, that it was even more severe than that, that it was a concurrent relationship, that he was a man in the church was committing adultery with his father's current wife, more than likely a stepmother, obviously. So Paul here confronts them and says, there is sexual immorality among you, and it's the kind of sexual immorality that even the Corinthian culture would not embrace. Now, the Greek word for sexual immorality here is the word porneia. And as Paul began to address this subject, and he'll also get into it in chapter 6, I think it's good for us to remember that there are various views on sex that pervade our culture. Most agree, it seems, that fidelity in marriage is good. So much of the discussion has to do with sex outside of marriage. Uh, One view is the natural impulse view. Uh, This view says that sex is a natural impulse or instinct that humans should pursue and enjoy to maximize pleasure. And of course, in any society where contraceptives are readily available, you're going to see this view actually made more possible. The argument is that mankind has been restricted by things like Christianity and we must return to the wild, so to speak, and that we have always been creatures who just need to live out our natural sexual impulses. Uh, This disregards concepts like sexual slavery, the reality that many people don't want to engage in these things any longer, but they've been saying yes to their impulses for so long that they've run themselves into a behavior that they cannot get out of. And also, it is good to ask, is it really always best to attempt to maximize pleasure? Something like debt, financially, ought to teach us that that is not the case. It is not always best to maximize pleasure. 
And another question that we could ask is, is what is wild or natural always good? No, we, we form societies with rules for a reason. A second view is the affection view. In this view, intimacy and not necessarily love is present and a feeling of closeness and care is also there. And if those two things are there, then you should enter into the relationship, including sexually. And if the intimacy eventually fades, the relationship can end. If the intimacy increases, uh, you sleep together, live together, and one day marry one another. Uh, you just click or have good vibes, etc. But the idea of this view, the problems of it, is that feelings of intimacy are too fickle to be trusted. Sex involves lives that are totally and completely shared without reservation. <clears throat> and sex can commit an infatuated couple to one another unnecessarily. You know, if, if they give themselves to each other because of infatuation, it's harder to break off that relationship once the infatuation is over. And so they might stick with each other longer than they should when they really shouldn't have been a couple in the first place. Marriage, in this view, really is not unique at all. There's not much that is special about it. Now, the abstinence view is the believing view, and it's that marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or, secondarily, total abstinence through a decision to say, I'm just not going to be married, and as long as I'm not married, I'm not going to engage in sexual relationship I'm going to know the Lord. I'm going to be one with the Lord. Now, in this view, it's good for us to remember sex is natural, designed by God to be enjoyable, helped along by intimacy, but it should not be used merely for physical gratification, but for the expression of deep love and affection. And this is taught to us in Scripture. This helps develop a solid family unit. It cuts down on disease and unwanted pregnancy. It is a good and healthy view for society. So here what we have from Paul in the Corinthian church is that you have a man who was given to a very out-of-bounds form of sexual immorality. This was gross misconduct from this man. Sexual immorality defined would simply be this, all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Now, the word activity is important uh, because there might be desire, there might be temptation, there might be even proclivities and all of that, but as those are there in the heart, it's about the activity. You see, the Lord will help us through our temptations. The Lord will help us through our struggles, but it's about that activity. He wants to keep us doing the right thing. So, again, sexual immorality. So Paul begins to pursue that with this church. And imagine, again, this problem. He'd heard all the way in Ephesus about a man who had his father's wife. And what he then goes on to say in verse 2 is, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Other versions say, instead of you are arrogant, you are inflated with pride. You are proud. You are proud of yourselves or you are puffed up. Somehow, the Corinthian church was proud 
of their tolerant behavior of this man in their midst. Now, it's not difficult to imagine how this sounded. They may have said things like, we are grace-filled, we're not legalists, we're advanced, we are pro-love. They may have pointed out that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners and that we don't want to come across as sin sniffers. And so as they maybe thought all of these things, they allowed themselves to celebrate the presence of this man in their midst. Instead, Paul said in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from you. The man, not the woman, was to be removed. Now, this does not suggest that Paul only thought that the man was worthy of church discipline, but that the woman could remain in the church. No, what it suggests is that the woman was never in the church in the first place. In all likelihood, she was not a believer, and Paul does not feel a need to bring discipline into her life. What he announces to them is, you should have been mourning, you should have been grief-stricken, and you should have removed him. For though, verse 3, I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Here, Paul announces to the church that they should have offered this man up for public church discipline. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, with Paul's spirit and in the power of Jesus, they were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what we're seeing here is that a believer that is engaged in this kind of unrepented of sin, you know, living in this blatant rebellion against the Lord, that's the kind of person that is a candidate for church discipline. Really, as you look at what calls for church discipline throughout the New Testament, there really are two main categories. It might be broken down into some more nuanced categories where you've come up with five or six, but really it's two main categories. Category number one would be a category like this, someone who persists in moral and ethical deviations from biblical Christian standards. And they're persisting in it, and even after being confronted and dealt with, they still don't want to be corrected and will not change their behavior. So they're living in open disregard of what the Bible commands for their lives. And we're talking about you know blatant, significant sin and rebellion against the Lord. A second category would be any believer who teaches contrary to the apostolic fundamentals, thereby causing division. I don't mean believers who hold to more fringe, secondary, or tertiary doctrines. What I mean is those real fundamentals, they are teaching something contrary to the apostolic fundamentals and also causing division attached to it. Paul said in Romans 16, verse 17 and 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. 
For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. And the New Testament is filled with many verses similar to that Romans 16, 17, and 18 passage. So the two types of people that are qualified to receive church discipline. Now, the goal in all of this, the why, why should someone be under church discipline is for restoration. Like Jesus said in the classic Matthew 18 passage, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal, that they'd be restored. This man that Paul is addressing about the, in the Corinthian church and anyone else under church separation was to be treated as a non-believer, but the goal is that they would experience restoration. Here, Paul talks about this man being delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You see, outside of the protection of the church, the body of Christ, this man was going to experience hardship. And Paul's hope was that as he experienced that hardship, he would eventually come back to the Lord and be restored. But, as Paul had already suggested, the Corinthians were boasting. That's why in verse 6 he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, why should we conduct church discipline? Well, the, the benefit here that Paul mentions is the benefit to the local congregation. The old leaven would be cleansed. Now, uh, oftentimes in the Bible, leaven is used as a picture of sin. And it's a beautiful picture of sin because what happens with lemon is it permeates the whole lump of dough. And Paul was announcing to the Corinthian church that this man's sin was holding back the whole body of believers. His sin, very blatant and outward, was leavening the entire lump. And so Paul said, look, when you deal with it, there's a benefit to the local congregation. So why conduct church discipline? Well, to benefit the local church. But also, he says, to deter others from sin. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, a major reason that church discipline is often hindered is because of our cultural esteem of individuality over community. You know, we see ourselves often as morally autonomous, rather than members of one another. In fact, there are many things, actually, that I love and enjoy about the next generation, and I think one of them is that they have a deeper appreciation for community than the generations that came before them. And in the body of Christ, especially, we should understand that we are not autonomous, but we are members of one another. So... Here are some practical considerations when it comes to church dis discipline. Number one, if division comes from biblical church discipline, then that division 
is not carnal, but is likely healthy. You know, if if somebody is behaving like the man in this passage, and he is confronted and removed from the church, and there is a segment of that church that is upset about that and divides from the church, well, that division is actually helpful to the church. Number two, it's not judging to practice church discipline. What you have here is a process of the offended being approached, which I'll talk about in a moment, but there's a process involved. In the New Testament, there is judging in the wrong sense, like Christ talked about in Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2, a hypercritical spirit, and then there is judging in the right sense, as we're seeing here. So church discipline is not, not that it couldn't be, but it done well, it is not judging in the wrong sense, but in the right sense. Number three, though we are all sinners, there is a difference between a repentant sinner and a persistent rebellious sinner. You see, we're all sinners saved by grace, and we're all people who struggle as we walk with the Lord. None of us are going to walk with him flawlessly without sin. But when somebody persists in outward rebellion against the Lord, that is much different than a repentant sinner who is struggling and trying to walk with the Lord, but fails from time to time. And so someone who is in persistent rebellion against the Lord, that person needs to be corrected. Number four, though it might seem unloving, it is not unloving to protect the sinner and to protect the church by removing them. And number five, though society might tell us that people actually need therapy and do not sin but make poor choices, the Bible teaches that humanity is responsible for personal sin. So just a few considerations about church discipline. Now, the process that should be followed seems to come from Christ in Matthew 18, verse 15 to 20. The offended should approach the offender first. And if that doesn't work, then the offended should return with another witness or two. And if that doesn't work, then the offended should go with the church leadership. And probably what will unfold is that they'll meet with the offended person, they'll meet with the offender, they'll perhaps meet with both, and eventually, if the offender is still unrepentant, they'll ask the defender to depart. Now, we live in a litigious society, so a lot of times churches are reticent to then take a church member and put them up in front of the entire congregation to broadcast their sin. So many churches have made the decision to share that decision with the sphere that was in the know about it. And to me, there seems to be some wisdom in that decision while also maintaining a faithfulness to God's word. If you have a church with a thousand people, for instance, there might be a person that is in need of church discipline that hardly anybody in the church knows, but the people who do know that person, they they need to be communicated with about that decision in that person's life because they were in 
the no. That said, it's not something that we've had to practice all that often in my years here within our fellowship and, and church. And, and here, even in the instance that Paul was holding out for the Corinthian church, you can see this was a flagrant sin that Paul had to deal with. Now, in verse 9, Paul goes on to say, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, remember, Paul had already corresponded with the Corinthian church. Uh, that's why he says, I wrote to you in my letter. So there was a previous letter, not a scripture, but just a letter, correspondence, where he'd encouraged them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Apparently, some people, though, had thought that Paul meant that they should not associate with anyone in their community who was guilty of sexual immorality or even some other sins, greed, swindlers, idolaters. But Paul announces to them, look, that would be impossible. You would have to leave the world if that were the case. What Paul announced then is, what I mean is don't associate with someone who has the name of a brother. They're calling themselves a believer. Don't engage with that person if they are persisting in blatant, rebellious acts of sin. They've just gotten themselves in a line of sin, uh, a line of, of habit or activity that is in rebellion against the Lord. You just need to break fellowship with that kind of person, which is often hard for a Christian to do. It is interesting here that Paul did not advocate monasticism. In other words, uh, he says, look, you, you are going to have to live inside this world. He did not believe that it was possible to separate from the world. There are, of course, guards and measures that a mature believer will need to take, but Paul said, you're going to live there. You're going to be in and amongst this. But what he meant was you need to have some discernment inside the church. Then he says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes loosely from Deuteronomy 22 and 24 when he says, Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is a fascinating statement to me from Paul that I think is greatly helpful to us in the modern church. He asks the question, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Look, there is a sense, of course, that every believer is really, in a sense, part of two societies. Uh, they are part of the society of God. You know, the kingdom of heaven, the church, uh, the big C church throughout the world, but also their local congregation, they are part of God's people. They're part of that society. I just use a lot of terms to describe that society that they're part of. There's a, so there's a case or a sense in which every believer is part of that society, but then also part of the 
earthly society that they're they're in in all of its various forms so the nation that they're part of or the state in a nation like the united states uh the the community the country the county uh, that they're in and so uh, every believer though has both of those distinctions going on in their life now when a believer is seeing the world from their earthly citizenship standpoint they of course are going to have various concerns for their community at large their society at large and given their understanding of god's word given their understanding of sin there will be certain things that they are for certain things that they oppose and it's not that every believer is going to agree about every application of that but that is one grid with which to look at the world But on the other hand, the other perspective or the other citizenship that we have in heaven, that is the hat that Paul is wearing when he asks the question, what have I to do with judging outsiders? You see, as a citizen of a society, a believer might say, you know, I'm against these certain behaviors. I'm for these certain behaviors. This is what I'd like to see happen in our society. I think it'd be the best for our society at large as a community. But as a believer, as a Christian in the kingdom of God, a believer understands with Paul, look, I really am not expecting, should not expect to control the behaviors and the appetites and the practices of those who are outside of the community of faith. In a sense, someone might be able to say, what a non-believer does with their life is not my business. Though I might care as a fellow citizen, my truest citizenship is in heaven and in the church. And I would not expect a non-believer to submit to Jesus. But as for my friends who have decided to follow Jesus, or for my friends who have decided to follow Jesus, I support them in their pursuit of obedience to him in whatever ways that would make manifest in their own lives. God will judge those on the outside, but we are to deal with what happens on the inside. That's why Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 22 and 24, purge the evil person from among you. We have a community of faith that we are responsible to take care of. And so a very important passage that helps local congregations in our modern era understand that there is power in purity. There is strength in holiness and there are times where it must be addressed and sometimes unfortunately in a confrontational kind of way but it is at times for the very best god bless you and amen thank you for listening for additional resources and teachings or to contact us please visit us at nateholdridge.com